Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 8, The Hobo Code. I mentioned last time that this episode marks, for me, the beginning of Mad Men's unraveling of its complex story. The show's first seven episodes introduced its prominent characters and their place in 1960s American society. So before we start with Episode 8, I want to quickly review what we've discussed so far. We left off with Red in the Face, with Don asserting himself at the office while his family life crumbled around him. The episode made subtle reference to Don's elusive past, a past that's haunted him since the show's premiere. Red in the Face also showed Pete's woeful attempts to exchange a chip and dip. Newly married and ready to move into a new apartment, Pete struggled with his lack of control, perhaps feeling emasculated. In just seven episodes, Pete's gone from anxious husband-to-be to downtrodden newlywed. And while she plays a supportive role in Episode 7, Peggy Olsen is still present, ascending at Sterling Cooper as she begins writing copy for Belle Jolie Lipstick. We can't forget where Peggy started, as the new secretary at Sterling Cooper, an outsider who didn't immediately fit in. She's been linked to Pete since the pilot episode, and as he grows less content, it's notable that Peggy's place in the world is rising. Episode 8, The Hobo Code, is Mad Men's dynamic portrayal of Peggy and Pete's developing bond. It centers around the Belle Jolie client and Peggy's evolving role as a copywriter. It reveals more of Don's mysterious past while exposing another of the show's secondary characters, art director Salvatore Romano. But its focus is on Peggy and Pete, their lives pointed in opposite directions, intersecting for just one scandalous, regrettable moment. The Hobo Code was written by Chris Provenzano and was nominated for a Writers Guild Award. Provenzano became a writer and producer for other popular TV shows like Archer, Justified, and Silicon Valley. The episode was directed by Phil Abraham. Abraham had worked as the cinematographer for Mad Men and The Sopranos and would eventually direct 15 episodes across each of Mad Men's seven seasons. We begin in the lobby of Sterling Cooper filmed in the former Unical Center building in Los Angeles Center Studios. The office opened in April 1958, and as Matthew Weiner notes, its architecture was mostly period correct. But turning it into Sterling Cooper's building lobby, and then another building lobby, and then a Cadillac dealership, that was the work of Mad Men's production designer, Dan Bishop. When Matthew Weiner decided to move Mad Men's production to Los Angeles, he was faced with a problem. How could the show rekindle the feeling of 1960s Madison Avenue from real-world sets in modern-day California? It was Bob Shaw, the pilot episode's production designer, who recommended the L.A.-based Dan Bishop. Upon seeing the office set for the first time, Weiner remarked, I can't explain it. To have this world brought to life, it exceeds your imagination. Bishop would eventually win multiple awards for Mad Men's production design. He stayed on through the series' end, mapping out generations of sets, bringing an obsessive attention to detail, to the ashes and stains and imperfections that made Mad Men's scenes feel like reality. As Weiner says, Dan put his ass into that scout van, and he would come back with pictures showing you a limited frame that he was going to turn into something that you thought happened 50 years ago. It's early one morning in Bishop's reconstructed building lobby that Pete Campbell enters the building elevator. Pete stands next to Hollis, as the doors begin to close, and Peggy hurries in. They pick up one of the building's black janitorial staff, and Pete becomes annoyed. Pete and Peggy enter the empty Sterling Cooper office. Peggy's nervous about her Belle Jolie copy. Recall that Peggy started working on this account after impressing another copywriter, 
Freddie runs in. The Beljolie pitch is scheduled that day, and Peggy has come to work early. Pete sits in his office, brooding, a close-up showing his unhappy face. He's set to move into his new apartment that day, and has come to the office to escape his family life. Peggy enters to ask if he wants coffee, but Pete demands she come inside and close the door. He seduces Peggy, grabbing her waist and leading her to the couch. As the two have sex, Pete tears the collar of Peggy's blouse. The janitor walks through Sterling Cooper, watching their silhouettes through the office glass. The tension between Peggy and Pete has loomed since the pilot episode. Pete's mostly flaunted his indifference to Peggy, but in revealing his fantasy to Peggy in our previous episode, Pete suggested that he still harbors an attraction to her. Peggy, meanwhile, seemed to be moving toward letting go of her feelings for Pete. She's grown in confidence since episode one, and given Pete's new marriage and Peggy's developing role within the office, it would seem like their stories are diverging. But Mad Men has suggested that there's an intense infatuation between these characters. From the beginning, their relationship has been driven more by passion than by practicality. It's implied that for Pete, this is about domination. He fantasized about this in our previous episode, Red in the Face. His wife, Trudy, is more of an equal. She denies Pete his desire for authority, perhaps one of his most powerful drives. When Pete encounters Peggy, he views her as meek, obedient. And with Peggy, Pete can become the authoritative man he aspires to be. Since we've already discussed some aspects of the show's set design, I'd be remiss to overlook the glass paneling used throughout the Sterling Cooper offices. The frosted glass panels signal a degree of privacy, but when we look closer, the result is the opposite. We can look into these offices, but not out from them. Mad Men takes steps to portray these executive men and their desire for privacy, going so far as to create a private account for their executives in their pitch to Liberty Capital Savings in the episode 5G. But with the secretaries managing their hourly schedule and involved in their personal affairs, it's clear that executive life was far from private. As Pete and Peggy dress themselves, he tells her that he hasn't read her copy and apologizes for ripping her blouse. Peggy is relieved. She insists that everything is okay and walks to her desk. The phone rings and the office begins to fill with employees. Don enters and hands his coat to Peggy, noting the tear in her blouse. She jokes about keeping a spare in her desk, similar to how Don keeps spare white dress shirts in his office. Peggy instructs Don to see Bert Cooper, and he mentions waiting for Roger, but Peggy insists that Cooper ask to see Don alone. Actor John Slattery was unavailable for this episode due to his role as a guest star on Desperate Housewives. Don walks over and sits outside Cooper's office with his shoes off. Cooper soon invites him inside and hands him a $2,500 check. Don seems confused by this, but Cooper insists that he reward Don for his work. Don, I am appreciative of your talents, and although that cannot be measured, I have made an effort to quantify. $2,500. I, uh... Thank you. That's what you say. <laughs> Cooper continues to give Don advice. He suggests that Don read the novel Atlas Shrugged, published in 1957 by Ayn Rand. Atlas Shrugged describes a dystopian United States where productive industrialists flee the government's welfare state to establish a free society in the mountains. In the novel, Rand lays out the core principles of her philosophy of rational self-interest. 
This philosophy, known as objectivism, advocates for the pursuit of one's individual happiness. Rand advocated against altruism, and her characters have also been called unfeeling and unsentimental, and Cooper makes reference to this as he describes Don. By that I mean you are a productive and reasonable man and in the end completely self-interested. It's strength. We are different. Unsentimental about all the people who depend on our hard work. While it's Cooper speaking the words, the voice is clearly Matthew Weiner's, describing what Don is and will become, before we know it, perhaps before Don knows it himself. The way Cooper so plainly states Don's nature is unsettling, and Don shakes his head, not knowing how to respond. He exits as Cooper casually returns to trimming a bonsai tree. We've seen Don's self-interest at work throughout Mad Men's first season. His character is driven by ego to be a wealthy, productive man. He's not concerned with charity, politics, or social causes, and he's unflinching in his expectations of others. Don's world is one defined by action. His value arises from productivity. He's the type of man Rand described so fittingly in Atlas Shrugged, 50 years before he was born to audiences, writing, I like to think of fire held in a man's hand. Fire, a dangerous force, tamed at his fingertips. I often wonder about the hours when a man sits alone, watching the smoke of a cigarette, thinking. I wonder what great things have come from such hours. When a man thinks, there is a spot of fire alive in his mind and it is proper that he should have the burning point of a cigarette as his expression. The Hobo Code is an episode about attachment, about how we relate to others, how we feel complete, how we become part of another person's world. And by invoking Rand, Madman tells us that Don issues these attachments. He's a man who lives for himself, a man who's not inviting others into his world. But as Don leaves, confounded by Bert's eccentric behavior, the rest of Sterling Cooper is welcoming its newest girl, a phone operator named Lois Sadler. Sadler sits in the switchboard room with Marge. You'll remember Marge from the pilot episode. She's played by Stephanie Courtney, famous for her portrayal of Flo in Progressive Insurance's well-known TV commercials. Lois eavesdrops on a conversation between Sal Romano and his mother. The two speak in English and Italian, the voice actor who played Sal's mother improvising some of her lines. Lois finds the conversation charming, she asks the other ladies about Sal, and Joan enters, describing him as handsome, debonair, and European. Later that morning, Lois walks past Sterling Cooper's art department. She first meets artists Marty Faraday and Dwayne Davis. These guys are hidden away, practically in a closet of the office, seemingly an afterthought at the agency. Marty takes an interest in Lois, failing to notice that she has no interest in him. When Sal walks past, Lois introduces herself and asks for directions before repeating Sal's goodbye words to his mother, Chow Chow. Elsewhere, Pete sits in his office having a drink. Trudy surprises him, showing up in person, and Pete quickly hides the glass in his desk. She shows Pete a bottle of champagne and congratulates him on becoming a homeowner, but Pete is unamused by Trudy's surprise visit. He tells Trudy not to show up at his office unannounced. As Trudy becomes upset, Pete's tone changes from stern to apologetic. He asks Trudy to have a glass of champagne, but she leaves, declaring that they'll have plenty of time to enjoy their new home together. The long-awaited Belle pitch begins in Sterling Cooper's conference room, with Freddie Rumson recalling Peggy's basket-of-kisses idea. The agency's pitch, 
one perhaps embodied by its writer, is based on uniqueness, and Freddie says, It's as simple as e pluribus unum, from many, one. From many shades of lipstick, one that belongs to her. From a basket of kisses, she picks one. It makes her unique. It colors her kiss. And her kiss, well, it colors her man. Belgely lipstick. Mark your man. Recall that Belgely's strategy had been based around a wide assortment of colors. Peggy's idea has re-envisioned the company's marketing approach. The Belgely executives are divided on this approach. The younger Elliot Lawrence smiles, claiming the writing is smart. But Hugh Brody is unconvinced. He insists that Belgely's customers like choices. Ken Cosgrove tries to convince him that the approach is fresh, but Don interrupts, suggesting they end the meeting. Hugh looks at him surprised, and Don admonishes him, saying he's uninterested in working with a client who doesn't value his expertise. Hugh suggests that Don doesn't know the lipstick business well enough to refashion Belgely's entire strategy, but Don is steadfast. I don't think your three months or however many thousands of dollars entitles you to refocus the core of our business. Listen, I'm not here to tell you about Jesus. You already know about Jesus. Either he lives in your heart or he doesn't. Ken and Freddie look unstunned as Don stands defiantly over the boardroom table. He continues to champion Peggy's idea, again borrowing her words. Every woman wants choices. But in the end, none wants to be one of a hundred in a box. She's unique. She makes the choices and she's chosen him. She wants to tell the world he's mine. He belongs to me, not you. She marks her man with her lips. He is her possession. You've given every girl that wears your lipstick the gift of total ownership. The Belgerly executives eventually agree on the pitch, and Don strolls through the office triumphantly, followed by Ken, Sal, and Freddie. They pass Peggy and enter Don's office, closing the door behind them and laughing in celebration. Don pages Peggy, inviting her inside and offering her a drink. She's awestruck as she looks at the artwork. It's marvelous. I thought it was going to say it's the mark you make on your man. Was it now? You may be a writer, honey. Really? You're arrogant. (laughs) You want another drink? I don't know. Not a writer. writer. (laughs) Peggy has grown from her beginnings as the office new girl in Mad Men's pilot, but the hobo coat is the most tangible portrayal of her growing confidence to date. Peggy's success with Belle keeps alive the idea of her as a copywriter. The episode shows Peggy caught between what she is and what she can become, glimpsing a different world of success and wealth, one dominated by men, one where her talent can drive her future. It's in the hobo code that we start to understand Peggy's talent. She's a gifted writer. Don adamantly defends her idea, even echoing her own words. This is rare for Don, a man who's consistently rejected others' writing. Don is arrogant, harshly critical, a talented writer himself, who desires to voice things in his own words. Repeating Peggy's words, mark your man, hints at the talent Don will eventually recognize in Peggy. But Peggy, for now, is still rooted in a world occupied by women. She enters the break room elated. Marge scolds Lois about writing her name on a list, making a conspiratorial reference to McCarthyism. Peggy interrupts with news that Belle Jolie has bought her copy, and the girls suggest they celebrate at the bar. 
Peggy stops by Pete's office and invites the junior execs to the celebration at PJ Clark's. Pete acts aloof, but eventually congratulates her and promises to stop by the bar. Actor Vincent Carthizer has stated that he initially played this scene very dismissively, but Matthew Weiner convinced him to adopt a more mellow tone that hides Pete's jealousy. PJ Clark's is a saloon located at 915 Third Avenue in Manhattan. It first opened in 1884 and hosted notable patrons, including Marilyn Monroe, Nat King Cole, and Buddy Holly. The bar still exists today, surrounded by skyscrapers. In the late 1960s, it was sold to property developers, who gave the saloon a 99-year lease on the building. The building was partially owned by Yankees owner George Steinbrunner and even Bernie Madoff. Standing in for the original PJ Clarks is Casey's Irish Pub in downtown LA. It's a large, dark bar filled with smoke and booze-filled euphoria as the Sterling Cooper employees descend on it in celebration. Stephanie Courtney dances the cha-cha with fellow guest star Barry Livingston and Joan with Paul Kinsey. Harry Crane flirts with Pete's secretary, Hildy, while Lois looks around longingly for Sal. The room livens as Chubby Checker's 1960 hit, The Twist, blares from the jukebox. Peggy dances her way toward Pete, who sits alone. She asks him to dance, but Pete rejects her. Peggy turns away, struck by Pete's callousness. She looks around the room, struggling to regain the happiness of her moment as Pete leaves the bar. Tears stream down her face as she tries to move to the beat of the song, the collar of her blouse still torn from the morning's events. We mentioned that Pete's desire is directly related to the weakness he senses in Peggy. She begins the show as an outsider, submissive to Pete, but in the hobo code, Pete starts to envy Peggy for her success. It's another example of Pete's insecurity. He likes the version of Peggy that he perceives as being beneath him. So while her career is rising, Peggy's affair with Pete falls apart for jealousy and inadequacy. As the celebration continues at PJ Clark's, Sal sits down for a drink at the Roosevelt Hotel. He's joined by Elliot, who admires New York City, claiming it to be the best city in the world. The two sit down for dinner, and Sal drinks Sambuco, echoing Matthew Weiner's core idea behind Mad Men. Sambuca con la mosca. Literally, with flies. <laughs> the espresso beans mean health, wealth, and um, happiness. Seems redundant. I mean, if you already have health and wealth. So, are you happy? <laughs> I'm one of those people who thinks the minute you ask that, you're not happy. So, <laughs> no. Sal muses about having his own advertising agency, but the conversation turns seductive, and Elliot reaches out to touch his hand. Sal looks on terrified, but Elliot reassures him. He asks if Sal would like to see the view from his hotel room. Elliot, I have thought about it. I know what I want. I know what I want to do. Sal continues to decline Elliot's advances, suggesting his fear of being outed as a homosexual. He leaves as Elliot sits alone at the white cloth table. Sal's homosexuality has been hinted at since Mad Men's first episode, but this episode makes it explicit, demonstrating Sal's repressed sexual desires and his fear of being outed. This was a real fear, even in New York in 1960. 
It was only two years earlier that the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled in favor of One Inc., the country's first gay rights organization. But anti-gay laws still existed in most states throughout the 1960s. Actor Brian Batt portrays this closely held secret with a deft balance. The casting of Sal made two points clear. First, that he was Sterling Cooper's art director, and second, that he should be obviously gay to a modern audience, but not to the world of the 1960s. Bat split his time between New York and New Orleans until 2005, when Hurricane Katrina forced him to the West Coast. He turned down an audition for Mad Men around that time, opting to take a vacation to Paris with his family. But Mad Men's casting directors persisted, and Bat eventually won the part after only one audition. He said that showrunner Matthew Weiner revealed Sal's entire story before the pilot episode finished shooting, and he spoken at length about the close friendships and camaraderie he developed with many of the show's other stars, stating, When I filmed my first matey scene in season one, where Belgelie salesman attempts to cajole my character, Salvatore Romano, into going to his hotel room, to be honest, I was a little bit nervous. Up until that episode, my role sort of consisted of a quip here and an arch look there. On that shoot, Aaron Staten, Vinnie Carthizer, Rich Summer, and Michael Gladys all showed up on set for moral support. By focusing on Sal's reaction to Elliot, this scene changes the tone of his guarded sexuality, from playfully kept secret to ticking time bomb. Hiding his homosexuality becomes an oppressive part of Sal's character portrayal from here on out. Don knocks on the door of Mitch Daniels' Greenwich Village apartment. She invites him inside, and he notices the apartment crowded with her beatnik friends. Don shows Midge the $2,500 check and tells her to pack her bag for Paris. But Midge has plans with her friends. Midge's friends look skeptically at Don. He's again comically out of place, sharply dressed in a gray suit amidst Midge's shabby apartment. One girl promises to take care of Don. He sits down and smokes a joint as they listen to Miles Davis's 1960 album, Sketches of Spain. Don wakes up from his high and enters Midge's bathroom. He looks at himself in the mirror, and we flash back to a scene from Don's childhood. Actor Brandon Killam returns as young Dick, digging a hole outside a farmhouse. His mother strings up laundry while his father tinkers with a car. As they toil in the sun, a homeless worker, or hobo, approaches. So what the heck is a hobo? The origin of the word isn't widely agreed upon, but it was commonly known in California by the 1890s. Some have speculated that hobo is a shortening of ho-boy, a farmhand. Others suggest that it comes from a greeting, ho-boy, or ho-bo. But regardless of its origins, the term has come to signify a homeless migrant worker. In the American language, American journalist and cultural critic H.L. Mencken writes, a hobo or beau is simply a migrant laborer. He may take some longish holidays, but sooner or later he returns to work. After the American Civil War, many soldiers hopped trains, some returning home while others found work on the American frontier. The post-war reconstruction period saw a massive migration throughout the United States, and by 1906, the transient population had grown to 500,000 people. The hobo population swelled again during the Great Depression, as many sat on the road looking for work. But hobos were considered lazy, dishonest, and even genetically inferior. They were often associated with political subversion, particularly with the communist movement. Some newspapers called for them to be sent to work camps, or even sterilized. Railroads employed bulls, security staff notorious for their violence towards migrant trespassers. 
Hobos developed a shared culture to cope with the dangers of travel. They camped in jungles near railroads and shared information. They used symbols to communicate with each other, drawn in chalk on signposts and train cars. These symbols ranged in meaning from the food's good here to watch out for the nasty dog. They also used monikers, a combination of a road name, date, and direction to indicate where they were headed. Hobo culture has been villainized by the American mainstream, but despite their wanton lifestyle, hobos adopted a shared ethical code. They preached respect for local law, vulnerable people, railroad staff, children, and even the environment. Foremost among their principles was the idea of self-determination, of deciding one's own path and own life. Hobos have been romanticized in popular culture, becoming synonymous with freedom and the process of self-discovery. Famous hobos include boxer Jack Dempsey, authors Jack Kerouac and Jack London, folk musicians, and even American billionaire Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia. Life on the road came to symbolize a restless energy, aptly described by Kerouac in his 1957 novel, On the Road. Because he had no place he could stay in without getting tired of it, and because there was nowhere to go but everywhere, keep rolling, under the stars. Returning to Mad Men, our hobo is played by Paul Schultze, an experienced actor with roles in Rambo, The Sopranos, and 24. He approaches the farmhouse, a set location near the Disney ranch, and offers to work in exchange for a meal. Don's father, Archibald Whitman, tells the man to move on, but his mother, Abigail, is more sympathetic. She insists that the family are still Christians and invites the hobo to stay for dinner, offering to boil his clothes. Over dinner, the hobo reveals that he's come from New York. He's well-mannered and agreeable, promising to work and denying communism. Dick's family is poor, struggling with money and with faith. His father rejects Christianity, but his stepmother clings to hope. She pulls out a nickel and offers it to the hobo, but Archibald takes it, insisting he work first. Late that night, Dick brings the hobo a blanket and tells him to say his prayers. They begin to talk, the hobo giving advice, as Dick reveals more about his family. I'm supposed to tell you to say your prayers. Praying won't help you from this place, kid. Best keep your mind on your mother. She'll probably look after you. She ain't my mama. We all wish we were from someplace else, believe me. Ain't you heard? I'm a whore child. No. I hadn't heard anything about that. Dick continues to talk with the hobo, who reveals that he once had a different life, with a job, a house, and a family. The hobo describes his disillusionment, and how he ran from that life. I had a family once, a wife, a job, a mortgage. I couldn't sleep at night tied to all those things. Then death came to find me. Did you see him? Only every night. So one morning I freed myself with the clothes on my back. Goodbye. Now I sleep like a stone, sometimes under the stars, the rain, the roof of a barn, but I sleep like a stone. The hobo predicts that death is coming for Dick's family. He tells Dick that he intends to leave tomorrow and tosses him a piece of chalk, showing him a series of symbols. This is how we talk to each other. On the front gate of every house, there's a mark. It's a code, just like you heard on the radio. You see? That's a pie. It means the food here is good. This one 
That means watch out for the nasty dog. This one here. That means a dishonest man lives here. The hobo leaves the next morning, saying goodbye to Archibald Whitman and waiting to be paid the nickel for his work. But Archibald refuses to pay and insists that he leave. As the hobo walks away, Dick finds the symbol for a dishonest man carved into a fence post. He looks to his father, frightened. The flashback gives us more hints about Don's past. It further elaborates on Don's family, that he's the adopted child of a prostitute, raised on a farm in the austere conditions of the Great Depression. It's clear that the hobo had a profound impact on Don's life. In episode 1.3, we discuss trains as a symbol for Don fleeing his problems. And throughout this season, we've seen Don running from his past. In Mad Men, the hobo code has multiple connotations. It's both the symbols that Don learns and the hobo's ideas about life, a code that Don adopts as his own. The symbols are important here, particularly the symbol of a dishonest man. Don has been shown to hate his father. He clearly witnessed his father's dishonest cruelty from a young age. But given Don's own lies and hypocrisy, we have to wonder if Don has escaped his past at all. The mark of a dishonest man seems embedded in his conscience. When Don wakes up from his flashback, he picks up a Polaroid camera. The shot of Don with his camera is eerily similar to one from Marriage of Figaro. Don takes a picture of Roy and Midge. He pulls out the film and looks at them, sitting on the bed. Don realizes that Roy and Midge are in love. Midge's friends criticize Don for his superficiality, that he invents want, worrying only about money while people suffer from real injustices. They reference the Biloxi Wade-ins, a series of civil rights protests on the beaches of Biloxi, Mississippi, where 10 men were shot. But Don is unapologetic. He looks around and admonishes Midge's friends as lazy and unproductive. I hate to break it to you, but there is no big lie. There is no system. The universe is indifferent. Don gives Midge a last chance to go with him to Paris. When she refuses, he signs her the $2,500 check and leaves the apartment. He returns home and immediately goes to see his son Bobby. He wakes Bobby, telling him to ask anything he wants. Here Don wants Bobby to pry into his past, but Bobby simply asks, why do lightning bugs light up? Don responds that he doesn't know and promises that he'll never lie to his son. Peggy arrives at the office early the next morning. She looks around but cannot find Pete. She returns to her desk, typing at her typewriter as the other Sterling Cooper employees enter the office. Later, Pete arrives, but he doesn't even look at Peggy. Don walks through the office, hands his coat to Peggy, and his door closes behind him. We see only his name, Don Draper, spelled out against the door as the episode fades to credits. The Hobo Code is one of my favorite and most memorable episodes from season one. Each of its subplots is compelling, with shared overtones of attachment and self-discovery. In Pete and Peggy, we see this attachment breaking, their lives diverging as Pete's married life becomes more prominent while Peggy succeeds as a copywriter. In Sal, we see repression, a denial of his sexuality due to the social stigma around homosexuality in the 1960s. And in Don, we see outright rejection through his interaction with Burt Cooper, the flashback to his childhood, and his final goodbye to Midge. Prominent in this episode are the performances of several guest stars, both recurring and new. Roger Morse reprises his role as Burt Cooper, and Alison Brie returns as Trudy Campbell. Ian Bohan continues his portrayal of Roy Hazlett. 
The episode also features several new stars, Joseph Culp and Bryn Horrocks as Dick Whitman's parents, Paul Keeley as Elliot Lawrence, and Bruce French as Hugh Brody. But perhaps the most memorable performance is Paul Schultz's portrayal of the hobo. He's full of the downtrodden sensibility you'd expect of a Depression-era worker, but his stories are powerful and convincing, especially to the young Dick Whitman. Don has quite clearly adopted the hobo's ideas about self-determination. He could be viewed as a modern man of the rails, one who flees from conflicts and obstacles to what he wants in life. The hobo's story about leaving his life and family behind seems to support Burt Cooper's earlier insight that Don is completely self-interested and unsentimental about those who depend on him. Whether Don realizes his detachment is up for debate, but both his meeting with Cooper and his flashback seem to disturb him. In the end, though, he leaves Midge unsentimentally. There's a motif of marking our possessions, which runs through most of the episode. It's the core of Peggy's Belgeli copy, which tells women to mark your man. Pete's mark on Peggy, her ripped blouse collar, recurs throughout the episode. The hobo leaves his mark on the fence post. But what is the mark that Don leaves? If the hobo code is an episode about attachment symbolized by a mark, is there some significance to the closing image of Don's name sprawled across his office door? The short answer is yes, but I can't really explain the significance without spoiling the entire series, because the answer is going to play out throughout Mad Men's seven seasons, so we'll have to wait until our next episode to untangle more about Don's identity, revisit Pete and Peggy's complicated relationship, and watch Betty Draper struggle with her own ambitions. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.